And if you were like me, you grew up familiar with the stories of the scripture, memorizing different verses or learning about different characters, but never quite had a picture of how they fit together. And if you're someone who has had no background in learning the Bible, being asked to read it or study it, I submit to you that you, along with everybody else, have a bit of a disadvantage today in that when we receive our Bibles, we receive them in one bound book. Some of the things that we lose sight of when we receive our Bible in one bound book is that we might think it was written at one time, that from beginning to end, somebody sat down and wrote all of it, which is not something that we believe as Christians. The books that we see represented in this index are actually written over a period of 1,500 years. There's over 40 different authors who contributed to these various books. It was written in three different languages, in multiple continents. And when we get a Bible and it's bound in one book, we sometimes lose sight of that reality. And then when we look at it, uh, one of the questions that I posed last time, and I'll pose it again uh, because I know that many of you are here that maybe weren't with us last time. When you look at the contents, do you think that the books are organized by the order of events in which they take place? So they're sort of a chronological flow of the books. Or do you think they might be organized by the time which they were written? So the first book written is the first book in the Bible, and the second book is the second book, irrespective of the events within them. Or do you think the Bible is organized by the type of literature that each book is? And the answer is the third one. It's not organized by the way the events unfold. It's not organized by the date which a book was written. It's organized by the type of literature that it is. So when you start in Genesis, we begin a story. Genesis means beginning. We get the beginning of the world and all of creation. And then last week, we looked at the beginning of God's covenant with his people, specifically and initially with Abraham and then those who would be of Abraham's family. And it remains chronological all the way until we get to the book of Job. Then we enter a different type of literature. It's what we call the wisdom literature. And in Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Solomon, we're not looking there to as much to get unfolding narrative or story of the people of Israel, but we're gleaning wisdom that's been gained from these various stories and experiences with God. So for example, in the Psalms, we have a Psalm written by Moses as well as Psalms written by David, two people that lived a very long time apart from each other. And then when we start in Isaiah, through the rest of our Old Testament, we get the prophets. These were people sent by God specifically during the time of the kings of Israel to speak to the kings of Israel and the people of Israel. And so all of this literature would fit somewhere within 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. The reason we go through this is because it's, just a, it's a philosophy of teaching that if we dive too much into simple stories and we walk away remembering individual stories, then we're handing people fish. But we're not teaching them how to fish. And like if any of us would have this weekend gone to have seen a movie or rented one and had it in our house and we've, we've looked at something now for a couple hours, somebody will come up to us and say, so what was that like? Sum it up for me. 
And we usually, in about two or three sentences, have to explain what type of movie it was, what it was about for the person that is engaging us to determine whether or not they're interested in doing the same. So is this a love story? Is this an action movie? Is this a thriller? Uh, What's kind of the general? You don't want to give too much away, but you want to be able to sum it up enough that someone can say, oh, I would like to read more. And I ask you if you would be able, if we went through various books, to say, can you sum up the book of Exodus? You've read it. Three sentences? What, What kind of a book is it? What is it about? Why would I want to read what's in Exodus? Or if you're coming with a question saying, I really want to learn about X or Y, would you know which part of the Bible you'd want to be looking to to learn about that? If you wanted principles of time management and how to handle money, would you know that Proverbs would be a great place to go? Because it's a collection of wise sayings related to, among other things, time management, relationships, communication, how to handle money. You see, if we can remember the larger categories, then even if we don't have specific verses memorized, we know where to go. When the question arises in our own mind, we know where to go to get the answer. The same is true of the New Testament. The New Testament is not organized by the way in which the events unfold, nor is it organized by the order in which the books are written. It's again organized by the types of literature that we're in. Now, we asked last time, and somebody came up with the answer very quickly, and I was thankful for that. There's something we encounter every day, most of us encounter, that is organized in similar terms. It's the newspaper. It's organized by the type of literature it is, different sections that we then go to and say, this is the section that I'm interested in. Now, I don't encourage that we read the Bible like we read our newspaper and we only pay attention to one section, but it's helpful to know that that's how it's organized so that when we read it, we have more of a sense of what we're dealing with. And especially today, as we go from the first book in the Bible to the second book, we were in Genesis 12 last week, we're going to Exodus 19 this week, one of the things that we can lose sight of is the time period that exists between the different books. And from Genesis to Exodus, we have a period of about 400 years, 400 years from the first book to the second book. And The way Genesis ended, we had talked last time that God came to Abram and made a covenant with him, promised that through Abram, he would bless all the nations of the earth. And he asked him to leave his hometown and all of his kindred and to go to a place that he was going to show him. And in looking at that part of God's covenant, we said that uh, we learned many things about faith. That faith for Abraham was not knowing everything about God, but knowing enough about God to do what God had asked him to do. And when we unfolded the story, many of you then commented afterwards as we paid attention to the broad picture and said, isn't it amazing how little Abraham knew about God, yet how much he obeyed him? You see, because when we get a sense that the Bible was given over a period of time, then someone we read about, like Abraham, wouldn't have had the book of Exodus to read, wouldn't have had the Psalms to read, wouldn't have had the Gospels to read. So when we ask, what what did Abraham know about God in order to 
follow him, to obey him, to move his whole family at the age of 75 in obedience to a call, we don't know exactly. We know that he knew enough to obey, to make this decision. God appeared to him, and we do not know all that God revealed to him. But isn't it amazing how little potentially that he knew and yet how much he obeyed? And then what a challenge that presents for us when the gospels say, to whom much is given, much will be required. And why is it that many of us who know our Bible so well struggle with obedience to our Bibles so much? And here again is sort of a philosophy of teaching that we have at Lakeside. It's not our goal in the teaching of God's word to simply fill everybody up with information. Our desire, which is what we believe is God's desire in scripture, is to see the transformation of human hearts into followers of him. That we don't desire that a whole bunch of people know more about God without becoming like God. And so as we teach the scriptures, we also want to teach what, this, uh, what the scriptures are intending to do in our lives, which is not just to fill up our mind with stories where we memorize a bunch of verses to win prizes at the end of some competition, but that the word, the story, the message of who God is would get into our hearts so that we could know God better. And so we're taking a broad overview. We're stepping back, if you will. The analogy, if you have ever entered into a museum and you've seen a, a huge canvas painting and you walk right up to it and just try to get as close as you can to it and you get to see some of the texture, some of the color, but it's not until you take a step back and another step back and another step back that you see how all of these colors go together and what the artist was intending to communicate. You can get something when you zoom in and go up close, but it's quite another thing when you step back and see all that was intended. And we've entitled this series, God's Faithfulness, His Love to a Thousand Generations, a Survey of the Old Testament. That what we have is an overarching story in the Old Testament of God's love toward his people. Now, as we use that word, we always have to be careful in our day and age to make sure that we mean the same thing by the words that we use. That the word love in scripture would not have been used in in many ways that we use it today, where love is something we fall into and we fall out of. Love is about making and keeping promises. Love in scripture is about making and keeping promises. So that if we say God is loving, we mean God is faithful. When we say God is loving to his people, we mean God is faithful. That if he makes a promise, he keeps a promise. And our story last week began with God coming to Abraham and making a promise, which is quite the profound thing because there's no particular reason why he would need to commit himself to something to promise to do something. But indeed, he came to Abraham and promised his love and his faithfulness to him. And we said last time, that promise then becomes a key when we read the rest of scripture that we can always ask ourselves the question, what does this new story that I'm reading have to do with that promise? 
But God has made a promise that will and is supposed to affect the entire world. And so I'll invite you, before we get to Exodus 19, to turn to Exodus 2, and we'll start in verse 23. We're now at about a 400-year difference from the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus. This family of people, probably about 70 or so people by the end of Genesis that had gone into Egypt because of a famine in the land, have now in 400 years grown tremendously as a people, but their sufferings have also grown because they've been enslaved as a people. And here they are in Egypt, a massive group of people yet suffering under the bondage of slavery. And in verse 23 of Exodus chapter 2, we read, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So here you see how the story continues in connection to God's covenant, his promise to his people that now, as they're a people who aren't in the land that they were promised, they're not experiencing what they might have thought they would have been experiencing in this promise. Their cries come up and it says that God hears their groanings and he remembers the covenant. Now, Hebrew words are often richer than our English words where we can translate one Hebrew word in five or six different English words. So to say that he remembered is not to simply sort of ascribe an intellectual thing where he forgot something and now he remembered it, but he's thinking about it with the intention to do something. You know, for those of you that are parents and you would have been encouraging your kids to something and you said, now did you hear me? I said, well, Yes, I heard you. No, 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 no. Did you hear me? In other words, if you heard me and heard the authority with which I asked you to do this, you would know that hearing it means you're going to do it. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm asking when I say, did you hear what I said? And when we, hear, when we read here that God remembered, there's this, not just this intellectual, uh, I, like something was forgotten and now it's known, but now is the intention to act. Now, something is about to happen in God's relationship to his promise that he made to his people. And so we read the story and say, what's going to happen? And when we go through Exodus 3 and 4 all the way into our passage, we see God's powerful action of redeeming his people from slavery. I just want to make one more stop along the way to Exodus 19. That's chapter 5, Exodus chapter 5. Because as God hears this cry from his people and addresses their slavery, like we've said, we've just spanned now hundreds of years where if you go to almost any major city, uh, to a museum of any major city, you'll see something about Egyptian civilization. Something about the architecture, something about the organization and the administration, the power of this vast, this vast empire that existed in ancient Egypt. And yet when we turn to our scriptures, 
and references made to this ancient civilization, it's not made in reference to, oh wow, look at the architecture, look at the schools that they had, look at whatever it is. But our scriptures zero in on the people within that civilization that would have been the most oppressed and left out of all of the benefits that existed. In other words, that what our God always cares most about is human beings. And so if we can show some grand structure, something amazingly built, <clears throat> but it's built on the back of slaves, God's not impressed with the structure. He's concerned for the oppressed. And here our God comes to these people and he begins actions to bring them free. And in the beginning of chapter five, it says, afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, <coughs> the head of Egypt, and he said, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. <coughs> but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. So Moses and Aaron come, and they say, God desires us. Let us go and worship God. But they're encountering one of the most powerful people in the world at that time who doesn't like thinking there's someone more powerful than he is. That there's some loyalty that his people will have that is not directed toward him. And so rather than saying, please teach me about this God that you've met, I'd like to know more, simply stands in pride and arrogance. Who's the Lord God? I don't know the Lord God. And so no, I'm not going to let you go. But their desire for freedom is made clear. They want to go to hold a feast to him in the wilderness. The God's setting them free was so that they could worship him so that they could experience the freedom to worship, a freedom they're not enjoying in their present situation in slavery in Egypt. They're being forced to work without rest, no ability to take a Sabbath, to contemplate, to reflect, to enjoy their families, and to worship the God they love. And so God comes to them to redeem them so that they could be free to worship him. And the question that Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord, gets answered in very dramatic ways in the unfolding chapters. And we now pass over all of that to Exodus 19. Again, the goal of this series is not to say everything the scriptures say. Hopefully it's to whet your appetite so that in hearing the, story, the scripture unfolded in a story form, you will be interested more so to read it on your own. But now these people have been set free. Pharaoh's question has been answered. God is a powerful God. And there is an authority stronger than Egypt. And they have come face to face in conflict with him. And God has won. His people are free. They're on a journey out. And we begin at verse 1 of Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, 
On that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel." So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord and the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot by an arrow, whether beast or man. He shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day, and do not go near a woman. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. And the Lord said, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said, the people cannot come up, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up, lest he break out against them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. The reason we went to Exodus 19 and not Exodus 20 is Exodus 20 is the more familiar passage where the Ten Commandments are given. And oftentimes, we hear about the Ten Commandments outside of the context in which those commandments were given, these unfolding events here in Exodus chapter 19. 
But the people are out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness of Sinai. They've been redeemed. And God comes to Moses and says, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell to the people in verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. One of the most important things to learn about the law of God that then unfolds in chapter 20 and then throughout the rest of Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch is where in which that law was given. God saw his people, the predicament that they experienced in the slavery and bondage they had in Egypt, and he didn't come to them in their slavery and in their bondage and say, I will redeem you if you obey my law. If you want to get out of the situation you're in, do what I ask you to do, and then I'll take you out of Egypt. In other words, the law wasn't given in Exodus chapter 2, it was given in Exodus chapter 20. That when God comes to him and says, here's, here's my law, here's what I'm telling you to do, here's a way of life that I'm laying before you. He does that to a people that have already been redeemed from slavery. He does that to a people that he has already acted for and on behalf of to bring them out of their need. That his redemption, his love, his affection for them is not based on their performance of of standards that he has that they can either measure up to or not measure up to, but that he's already come to them sympathizing and and having pity over their situation and redeeming them in spite of themselves. If you take the time in this coming week or any time here in the future to read through Exodus from chapter one on to their actual redemption, you will see that time and again, God saved his people out of slavery, not because of themselves, but in spite of themselves. That time and time again, when the situation got more difficult, they were saying, "Um, this isn't working out so well. Uh, maybe, Maybe it's not as bad as we thought. We're actually okay right where we're at. And in their expression of doubt, in their expression of fear, God never walks away and says, hey, you're expressing doubt, you're expressing fear. I guess I'm done with you. But with pity on them, understanding, knowing their situation and the gravity of it, he persists to redeem them, to bring them out of a situation from which they cannot free themselves. And so by definition, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen outside of themselves. But the people cannot save themselves. The power of Pharaoh, the power of Egypt is too strong and they're dependent upon a power that exceeds human power and they find that in God. And so God brings them out and makes clear to them that he has done this, he has shown his affection, he has kept his promise, he has borne them on eagles' wings. Before he's given to them the law which he then says is for them. That this is a way to live. And so many times we fall into a trap of approaching God in such a way that we think he's laid out all of these standards and measurements and it's by doing all of those things that we then earn or receive the favor and love and affection of God. Instead of believing that he has pity on us, that he loves us and sees 
when we're in situations that we ourselves cannot conquer. And he doesn't just come to us and then ask us to do a bunch of things we can't do and then punish us for doing the things we can't do. But that in love for us, he redeems us. He makes us his own. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that when he then gives us commands, when he then gives us things to do and follow, he's also given us the freedom and the ability to do the very things he's asked us to do. If he comes and asks us to follow him and to do this and to do that, he also equips us with the freedom that we need, the time that we need, the ability that we need to do the very things that he's asked us to do. And so then he comes to these people, showing them that he's already redeemed them. He's already shown his power to them. And then in verse five, now if you will obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And so while he came to them and redeemed them in spite of themselves, their ability now to enjoy this relationship is going to be dependent upon how they interact with him. Now that they have this freedom, now that they enjoy, and they don't have somebody else saying, you can't do this and you can't do that, you have to do it my way, the Pharaoh's gone, you're free, I've set you free. But a relationship is always, is it not a two-way street? You can't have a conversation with someone not willing to talk back to you, not willing to listen to you. And so he's come to them and done everything that he can do to show himself loving toward them, faithful toward them. But he then doesn't commit them to a relationship that they're not going to be interested in for the rest of their life. He says, here, I've set you free. I've brought you out of the situation that you were in. And I'm about to give to you my law, my wisdom, my way of life that exceeds all human wisdom. And if you will obey my voice, keep my covenant, then you will enjoy this relationship forever. That you will enjoy this relationship forever. And so he didn't come to them and give them the law in order to have the relationship with them but in order to maintain that relationship with them, in order to enjoy it in an ongoing way, obedience was absolutely crucial. And so then Moses, getting this message, comes down, he calls all the people together, and he commands them. And they all together say in verse eight, it's all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will obey this covenant that he's made. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. And then the Lord says to take all the people and consecrate them. When I come, it's gonna be an amazing thing, something that they've never seen before. They've been prepped for it in the, in the experiences that they've just come through in Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. But one of the things that often happens when we talk about the redemption that God provides and the fact that he has pity on us, the fact that he reaches down to address the help and help the helpless, the needs of those who can't help themselves, that we can present God in, in such a way that we then lose our sense of awe and respect for him. You know, in other words, we can always describe him as a buddy or a friend, somebody just alongside of us that we lose this sense that yes, while he's redeeming us and he has affection toward us and is unfolding his plan in our lives, he is still an awesome God. 
And he is still worthy of our respect and a fear, in a sense, that we're dealing with something very different from us. And so while at the same time God is demonstrating his covenant faithfulness, he's also demonstrating his unique holiness. That he can't just be addressed and referred to and dealt with in any way. But there are specific ways in which we, if we're going to enjoy a relationship with him, must deal with him. And oftentimes, like I said, maybe it's not a temptation for you, but I know it's a temptation of mine to so emphasize the things that God has done for us that we lose sight of and then of his uniqueness and we begin to presume on the very things that he's done for us. We lose any sense of wonder or fear at who this God is. And so in a very dramatic way, he comes and the people have to go, they have to clean themselves before they're even gonna approach this mountain. And even when they get to it, they're not allowed to ascend it. It says, take care not to go up or to touch it. Whoever touches it will be put to death. No one can come past a certain point. What you're about to see is something that you can enjoy, but you have to be careful with. You have to approach it with a certain humility and a maturity to know what you're dealing with. Just like, again, using the the example of kids, we know that there are certain things that we might be able to enjoy with a certain level of maturity or knowledge that we wouldn't want a kid to be responsible to do. Can they quite grasp fire? Do we want them turning on the stove? No, I mean, they're gonna get to enjoy a lot of the benefits of it. They get the cooked food, they get the warm house, but that doesn't mean we're gonna ask them to go and start playing with fire. Because to enjoy what it brings, there also has to be this mutual respect to say, I can't just do anything with this, otherwise the whole house will come down. We won't just heat the food for a meal, everything will come down. But there's something powerful that has to be respected and revered if it's to be enjoyed the way in which it was intended to be enjoyed. And so here's God coming to them, communicating with them, but making very clear that this communication, this affection, all that he shows toward them is still something that they have to respect. And so he comes in verse 16 in thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a loud trumpet just something that demonstrates the awesomeness of who God is and his unique holiness and demonstrates again we cannot ascend up to him. He must come down to us. It's another unique perspective that as Christians we have on our scriptures that when we look to these scriptures and we say this is the word of the Lord, we don't mean that somebody one day was sort of out in the field and all of a sudden they just had these really profound thoughts about God and they wrote them down. And what we're reading is just tremendously smart people who have figured out some way to get to God. We look at God and say, no, he's so absolutely, uniquely holy that we cannot know him unless he reveals himself to us. There is no one of us smart enough to say we have a corner on the divine. We have a corner on the eternal. 
And so when we approach our scriptures and read them and say, this is the word of the Lord, we do not say, here are individual people that were smart enough to figure God out, but here are people to whom God was willing to reveal himself in his grace. But the only way that we can know him is his willingness to come down, his willingness to, to, to hide, if you will, or mask in some fashion the power that is there so that we would not be consumed. Because if we were to see him sort of in all of his glory and all of his power, we couldn't endure it. That's how unique God is in comparison to who we are. And these two things we have to keep in tension. That when we look upon all that he's done in history, we have to recognize and affirm his love, his faithfulness to a thousand generations, keeping the promises that he has made and at the same time recognizing that he is powerful and unique, holy and awesome and to be revered by his people. And this isn't something that's just an Old Testament theme. And this is one of the things that we hope that as we walk through this survey and look at the big pictures that all of us will see that this comes through all of Scripture as we talk about God. And so to conclude, I'll invite you to turn to Romans chapter 11. at the end of Romans chapter 11. Paul is taking in Romans a step back and looking at the unfolding plan of history and God's redemption and his awesomeness and his holiness. And starting in verse 25 here, he warns, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins." And as regards the gospel, they're enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of your forefathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you one time were disobedient, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So Paul is reflecting on this broad sweep of redemption history and all that God is doing and the unfolding of his mercy. And then he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. 
And so as Paul talks about the redemption that God has provided, he never loses the wonder of who God is and the holiness of God and that none of us can say we've known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor, that we have to hold these two things in tension. And as we read about the beginnings in Genesis, the beginning of the world, the beginning of his covenant to his people and his promise to be faithful to them. And as we now read in Exodus and his redemption of his people in spite of themselves, his persistent love for them, we must always keep and maintain an awe and a wonder for who he is. Because we cannot enjoy him until we respect him as such. And so as we conclude in prayer now, I'll ask us to do something that uh, we don't do too often, but it is a way in which, a visual way, a bodily way of showing the sense of reverence and respect that we have that God is holy and that we are not. And it's by bowing on our knees. And so I'll invite you to bow as we pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would unpack and unfold your story in our lives. You are eternal and infinite, glorious, powerful, holy, creator and sustainer of all things. You are faithful to your promises even when we are not. We thank you that you save us in spite of ourselves. And we thank you that you have chosen to give your word to us, your law to us, so that we can enjoy our relationship with you. Help us to see the gift of your word. And help us to always remember our own frailty. Help us to approach you with humility, to never lose sight of your power, your uniqueness, your awesomeness, O God. We pray in the name of your Son and our Lord Jesus. Amen.